In a world filled with information, where do you turn to get straight talk about retirement, investments, and your money? Lock it in to the longest-running financial talk show in Arkansas and let us help you build the bridge between information and application. Real financial change begins right here, and it starts with you. It's showtime! On the 4th of July weekend, it is always a good time to talk about the pursuit of financial independence. Achieving it takes more than simply saving tons of money. Planning for the unexpected on today's show. This is the Get Ready for the Future show. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Get Ready for the Future show. Glad to have you along as always. My name is Scott Inman, John Shrewsbury, Janet Walker to my right. Hello and good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back after a week off and uh, get back in the saddle here as we talk about financial independence on this Independence Day weekend and hope everybody has a safe and happy 4th of July. We'll start there. We're going to do a couple of things on today's show. Kind of an ongoing theme as the market has considerably lengthy turmoil in 2022 we have uh, we've consciously kept our finger on the pulse of that and understanding the sensitivities to it and how it worries investors and we understand that so we always want to address that talk a little bit about the economy and the markets today to start off with and then kind of segue into story time you know we were just talking about paul harvey before we yeah uh, before we were in, got on the air today and you know the there's master storyteller there's a lot of people don't know who paul harvey is yeah he just did. go find him on youtube you yeah. need to take time in life to understand who paul harvey was yes. they may have seen the commercial that was like a super bowl commercial yes. Yes. to go with his voice on it on the eighth day god created a farmer yeah uh they may remember that but yeah go go google the rest of the story yeah yes. and you'll hear the master storyteller paul harvey we by no means are going to claim that status but we are going to do a little storytelling today. yes i I think it's important uh, because stories are very instructive to us and i think as we go through this story we're going to talk about how you could be financially destitute but start out with a couple of million dollars and it's not because we went ran into some volatile markets or a recession Mm. so let's just kind of get that out of the way first because i'm a little bit uh at at what's going on these days uh, and let me just say at the outset we're not in a recession yeah but if these talking heads keep talking they're going to talk <laughs> us into a recession right and, and because your reality is your perception right and if you perceive that you are in a recession then pretty soon you're going to act like you're in recession and therefore you're going to be in a recession yeah now that that doesn't you know obviously that doesn't uh, downplay higher prices and inflation that right. we're dealing with but but, but Janet mm-hmm. we're just not there yet yeah and I think a lot of uh, people who are not in this industry they go well we've already heard talk about a bear market how are we not in a recession they kind of equate you know this bad label with that bad label and all of that so let's talk about this a little bit about how by definition we're not mm-hmm. there right now so this is from Brian Westbury uh, chief economist at with First Trust and just he's he is a person we have really enjoyed following over the years and and is in alignment with how we think many times and so this is what he he says about the recession question he says we believe a recession is coming but the United States is clearly not in one yet so here's some of the information for it he says in the first five months of the year manufacturing production is up at a 6.6 percent annual rate non-farm payrolls are up at an average monthly pace 
case of 488,000, and the unemployment rate has dropped to 3.6% from 3.9%. So those are all numbers that are moving in a positive direction for us. He says, if this is a recession, we could use more recessions. I, I love the way he puts that, but by definition, we're not there right now. Yeah. Well, and obviously, everything is not fine with the U.S. economy. We have this inflation thing going on, mm-hmm. and you know the Fed is doing what it knows to do, and that's raise interest rates. I really hope they don't get too uh, overboard with that because it could throw us into a recession if they are bound to do that. Westbury also talks about the fact that uh, one of the things that he believes that we need to do is to tighten the money supply because there's plenty of money out there in the environment and too much money chasing Mm -hmm. too few goods is a classic recession thing but the m2 money supply was reported just on on tuesday of this week and he says uh the the m2 money supply uh over a 12-month change fell to 6.6 percent the slowest growth rate since the pre-pandemic days of 2019 so as the inner workings of government and the fed and what have you begin to tinker with this i westbury is of the opinion uh, in the camp scott that that the money supply has got to shrink in order to be effective at pulling back on inflation it's not just raising interest rates that's going to do that yeah and it's a big scary word recession and i think it's important to point out what is even the definition of a recession right and and i think that that's not even universally agreed upon in itself but traditionally We are in a recession when we are in two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, GDP standing for gross domestic product, what the what the country makes. Right. And in quarter one of 2022, we were negative. We were down one point five percent. So if we come in and here we are at the end of the quarter. Right. July is right upon us. So the end of Q2, we won't know the numbers till later in July. But if the GDP comes in negative again, there's the traditional definition of recession. Now, most economists don't think that we're going to be negative again anyway. But even if we are, John, I think it's important to point out the difference between and Westbury kind of references it here, too. He says the debate about whether we're in a recession should be about real economic pain not academic style semantics or whether we fit Mm -hmm. some technical definition and that goes back to all those numbers you quoted janet you know all the other numbers are good if yeah if companies are making money if they are producing if consumer demand is there all those things are in play and we have low unemployment even if that gdp number comes into play it may be a warning signal that all those numbers are about to change i think Mm -hmm. that's worth pointing out because we are really at what is considered full employment so we really have no way to go but the other way at some point but that is really getting the cart ahead of the horse just seeing that gdp number here in a few weeks yeah and let me go back to this m2 money supply thing because that can be that can sound like you know investment speak and and it really is but it's really uh what the fed does to control the the flow of money that is available through the banks in america and the fed was very accommodative during uh the covid recession you know they flooded the economy with money now we've got to draw back on that supply of money. And it looks like that the Fed is actually doing that. And, and I think that has more of a uh, calming effect, if you will, on inflation than just simply raising interest rates. Yeah. If you think about it, the rate at which you borrow money, if money is, is still plentiful, mm-hmm. is a factor. But if the bank doesn't have as much money to lend out, right. despite what the rate is, it can still 
still affect the economy overall. And so that is the the basic definition of the M2 money supply uh, that that I can share with you on that. But but I think that that obviously, you know, there's been this double shock. There's been the shock of of the bear market. And then there's been the shock of at the grocery store, you show up and, you know, hamburger meat is like $5 million a pound or something like <laughs> yeah. that or whatever. Close, and close. I don't need to shop where you shop. No, I'm, well, you know, <laughs> I'm not eating hamburger anymore, if that's the case. But, but you know, you get it. It yeah. feels like yeah. it's $5 million yes. a pound. I, I was traveling and, and I bought dinner for myself and Charlie Skinner, another advisor, was traveling with me at an investment conference. And I was like, it's how much? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for two people. Okay. Yeah. All right. So anyway, I I do believe that that we really do have a confidence recession as opposed to a economic recession. It doesn't fit the economic definition of recession, but it does fit the confidence definition of a recession. Because I think we're also at um, the early stages of an interesting point with regard to how we look at unemployment rates. I was reading something on this recently about the number of jobs relative to the number of workers. And you know how the baby boomer generation has impacted every area of industry as they have gone from birth and now to the point of retirement what's happening is we have more people retiring than we have coming into the workforce and we haven't really taken that into account on what that's going to look like as baby boomers continue to retire on the impact on how we look at unemployment numbers we are we are getting to a point where we have by millions we have far more jobs than we have workers and we really haven't thought about it generationally and i think that's going to have an effect of bringing some justice into what has been one of those things that has been quietly done in corporate america for a long period of time and that is pushing older workers out now corporate america needs those older workers to stay around because number one they've got the experience but number two they need the body there to to take care of of whatever work that's being done and and i think that one other thing i will i'll share with everybody and i was uh, reading some stuff from our old friend burt white uh that was published just today as a matter of fact bert says that the for investors the greatest risk that we have right now is not the recession it's not the volatile markets but it is abandoning your plan Mm. emotions are ignited by pain fear and suddenness which makes market volatility hard to navigate it's easy to identify the challenges that sit right before us but the case of how things will improve is often harder and more nuanced i think that that really does dovetail into our conversation today assuming you have a plan right there are a lot more dangerous things out there than a volatile market because if your plan is done right the volatile market works itself out yeah i saw i looked up today the retirement confidence survey you know that comes out once Mm -hmm. a year how confident Mm -hmm. are you that you'll be able to retire and when you compare the confidence of americans who are about to retire without a plan to the americans who are about to retire with a plan way more people are confident when they have the plan when they are going into retirement with a plan than the people who don't. So it goes back to what you say all the time, John, and I've started adopting as well. It's not the economy, it's your economy. Mm -hmm. So even if we are teetering on a recession, which again, I think it's worth pointing out in the next year or two, if it doesn't happen 
in, in Q2, it's still going to likely happen around the corner at some point. The average recession since 1900 has lasted about 15 months. And since World War II, it's lasted only about 11 months on average. So we're still talking about a blip on the right. radar. So this is not a reason to not invest. It's not a reason to stop saving money. It, it is a reason to stick to the plan. So when you talk about the plan, which is really to achieve financial independence, what are some things that can blow that plan up? That's really where we're going with this today. It's not just about saving and investing. It's about preparing for the unexpected. Yeah, I think that anytime you're retired, I think you think about what are the things that are, are going to be problems that I know about, but then what are the things that are going to be problems that I don't know about? And that's really our job here at GenWealth is to solve the problems, help you solve the problems that you do know about, but also bring up the problems that you don't know about. Right. And so today we want to really talk about that because I think that it is very possible for you to be, you know, very sound financially, but still run into a big problem. Hmm. So we mentioned earlier Paul Harvey and story time and such. We're going to go ahead and, get, and go to story time today. But uh, I just just know apologetically that none of us are Paul Harvey, but we're still going to do story time. So here we yeah. go. So we want you to hear about a family. We're going to call them the Turners. Uh, just to be clear, this is not these are not any actual clients of ours. But that having been said, th- we have seen this story play out very close to the details that are in in the story that we're sharing with you today. So it's not some wild hypothetical, this might possibly happen. We've seen things like this happen. So let me tell you about the the Turners. Go ahead, John. No, you I was just, just going to say the Turners are, are uh, who most people would look at and go, wow, yeah. they've really made it. They are very, very successful. So let's talk about what that looks like for them. So we have Marianne and Joe Turner. They're both 67. They're retired. They're finally enjoying the fruit of their many years of hard work. Took them a long time to get to this point, but their kids are educated. They're out of the house. Speaking of the house, the house is paid off, so they no longer have a mortgage in place. They take regular trips to interesting places around the world. Uh, In between trips, they're spending time with the grandkids. They meet with their advisor on a regular basis, and they're even in the middle of buying a beach house. This is a story that we could tell you to this point across our client base. We hear pieces of this from our clients regularly, but here's what happens. Three weeks before they plan to close on this beach house that they're looking at, Joe has a debilitating stroke. After some initial treatment, the hospital team tells Marianne that Joe needs to go to the nursing home. Marianne is shocked to learn that the care that Joe will need will cost in excess of $10,000 a month. She finds out that Medicare will only cover the first 100 days, but from all appearances, Joe could be in there for much longer than that period of time. So not knowing how long or even if Joe will recover, Marianne calls their financial advisor in a panic. Well, obviously Marianne's got a problem. Joe's got a bigger problem. Joe's got, you know, he is bedridden with a stroke. Marianne has a really big problem because if you go on with this story, what you find out is that, yes, the Turners were well off. They had over $2 million 
in assets. In his retirement account, and that's key to understand yes. that it's in his name. Yeah, very common situation that we see really a lot at GenWealth with people who have a lot of assets, but they're all rested in, for the most part, in one of the spouse's retirement accounts mm-hmm. because that person has been the breadwinner of the family. Maybe the other person didn't work or they worked a very little, they didn't save a whole lot of whatever the case may be. So, in the case of, of the Turners, Marianne was a homemaker, and she had very little in terms of, of liquid assets to their name. In their case, the nursing home will see Joe's assets as being for his care and not for the living expenses of Marianne. So get that one note that the nursing home looks at Joe as their client, as their patient, they look at Joe's assets and they say, Joe's got $2 million. Mm-hmm. We don't really, uh, not that they don't care, but we, Marianne's not really in the picture there. The, the business side of things, it set aside the personal side that they, they may care about you as an individual from the business aspect of things. Joe has a bill of $10,000 a month and Joe has a $2 million IRA account. It does not matter business-wise that that $2 million IRA account the Turners have considered it as a family account, that it's paying for the family. It's paying for their trips. It's paying for what they do with the grandkids. It's paying for Mary's, Marianne's just daily expenses of life. The nursing home looks at it as he's a patient. He has this bill. Those are his resources. And now when you examine those resources, you go, okay, $10,000 a month is the obligation here. And you got $2 million. Well, there's not very much margin there for Marianne to pay her living expenses. Right. Obviously she's doesn't have a paid for house, but you know, they're in the middle of buying this beach house. Can they bail on that agreement? Because that's a, that can be a real problem there. So this, I I know that some of our listeners are like, I mean, it's 10,000. She, they got 2 million. Like this works really. It doesn't because Mm -hmm. when you look just at the $10,000, that's $120,000 a year. That's a 6% withdrawal rate on that $2 million, not counting anything that she needs. It's yeah. too high of a withdrawal rate. So here's the, the, the point, Scott. I think that what we need to understand here, the future really belongs to not the fortunate, but to the prepared. Uh, and I think that, you know, fortune does, does favor obvi- the prepared. Yeah, it does favor, but, but it really belongs to the prepared because you've got to look at this from the standpoint of uh, the story that we've told you is fictional. But we can assure you that these similar circumstances, as Janet has pointed out, have played themselves out all across America. And and we see this from time to time. Unfortunately, oftentimes it's after it has happened that people come in to us and say, hey, I need some help. And really, at that particular point in time, our hands are tied. Well, and and we've also been in the situation where um, people, our clients have called us and said, my spouse just had such and such health, whether it's a stroke or whatever the case may be. They've called us and told us about this bad health situation that has just come to their attention. And then we talk about, yeah, but remember, you have a long-term care policy in place. So let's let's pull that back out. Let's go through the details of how this works. We planned for this. And that's the point that, the Scott, with the right amount of planning, this doesn't have to be 
the unmitigated disaster that that the Turners are having here, it can be one that is a, a solely a health disaster and not necessarily a financial disaster. So the two big issues here in play as we begin to talk about how do you prepare for a situation like this that may occur and obviously statistically is mm-hmm. likely to yeah. occur to one spouse during their lifetime. You have the issue of it's Joe's money and and uh, the spouse has no real access to that without planning for that. And then you have the long-term care need, which is the financial need of $10,000 a month. So let's talk about the estate planning nature of that, because you know a lot of people do. I, I, we've had this in many times in a client meeting room when they come in and the it may be that the uh, this one spouse has most of the assets in the qualified plan 401k. We talk about the possibility of rolling that over to an IRA and they ask us, can we put in? Can we put it in an US IRA? Right? Mm-hmm. They they mm-hmm. want to put it in an US in IRA. An US IRA. Well, that's right. An IRA starts with an I for a reason, right? Yes. Individual. <laughs> so anything that it starts off registered as, whichever spouse that may be, it has to stay registered in that person's name. So what do you do about it? Well, that's come. That is the estate planning component to this. Absolutely. And I think that you have to remember that the legal documents of any estate plan have to be drafted and executed prior to an event Mm -hmm. after you know what's the old saying that the horse is out of the barn at that particular point in time after it's already happened you can't go get a power of attorney done by somebody that's had a stroke and they're incapacitated in in the nursing home or what have you so that is a really critical thing and then uh, uh, how you solve that is a relationship with a good estate planning attorney yes and we advocate for estate planning attorneys all the time it is not unusual for us to actually sit in on a a meeting between one of our clients and the estate planning attorney just to be sure that everybody's all on the same page and covering the bases. Um, we have some some really solid uh, relationships with attorneys who can help walk you through that. I want to be very clear that we're, we don't do that. We're not attorneys. We're certainly not estate planning attorneys, but we are in a role in our clients' lives where we see the need for this regularly. We see when it has not been addressed and we see when it has been addressed. And and this is something that with my parents, I, I had asked them for, I don't know how long, you know, mom and dad, please go do this. Please go do this. Please go do this. And, and it wasn't urgent. Mom was ready to do it. The first time I mentioned something, dad was like, uh, you know, whatever. It's, it, when you've raised a kid, you kind of <laughs> don't take their advice for a period of time. And finally, my brother and I got to the point where we went to dad and said, look, if you'll do this, he and I will split the cost. You don't have to pay a penny to go get it done. I just want you to do it because we're going to be the ones who have to clean up the mess later if you don't. And That when, made it easy. When, well, but when dad realized how important it was to us, he did it and he paid for it. Yeah, we, we actually didn't wind up having to, but the, it was that important to us that we were just like, just fix this, address it. So one of the instruments that an estate planning attorney would use is a power of attorney. And in our story that we've we've shared with you, a POA, a power of attorney, would have given Mary Ann the legal authority to move money on her behalf, on on her husband's behalf. She could even gift money from the IRA to herself, which actually does change the dynamic mm-hmm. of, of that whole issue with the, the nursing home. And so we've included the fact that this couple was in the midst of buying a beach house for a reason. Having the POA would have put Mary Ann in the driver's seat to determine if proceeding with the purchase of that beach house 
would be something that they even wanted to do. Now, mm-hmm. there's some legal issues about once you get into a real estate contract, can you actually unwind it? You may have to pay some penalties to be able to do that. There's a lot involved there. But again, thinking about this ahead of time puts Marianne in the driver's seat as opposed to being a victim of circumstance. I think it's worth pointing out, too, getting that POA, that durable financial power of attorney in place, doesn't always mean that it's only usable in a nursing home situation, too. Right. A lot of cognitive skills are going to be on the decline as clients get older. Older People get older. Americans get older. I have a client who's 87 who is going through that. She doesn't have a spouse. Her spouse already deceased. She's named her grandson as the power of attorney. And mm-hmm. he is on file and able to make decisions financially to make sure her bills are paid. She's still not, she's not in a home. She's living right. uh, in, in, in an apartment, in an assisted living apartment, but has to pay the bills and struggles with those types of decisions. So I think it's important, just as a side note here, while we're talking about that, it doesn't have to be just for if someone's going to the nursing home, it can be for any need they have uh, when that POA is triggered. Let's also talk about a bit of a fallacy, and that is the fallacy of self-insurance. Can you pay you know, a bill? Yes, but can you pay a bill that is round-the-clock care? Is it you know a bill of $10,000 a month? And, and Janet, we had a team member actually have a grandparent that had like a $12,000 a month long-term yeah. care bill that they were having to deal with. And I think long-term care, was a, 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 a long-term care insurance was a factor there. Yeah, it's, it's something that when you first look at it, well, I'll give you the perspective of a financial advisor. This couple, the Turners, might have said, well, we got $2 million, we can self-pay. Okay, you can, but what has to be given up if you self-pay? Because you can do it for a period of time, but for how long can you do that and Marianne still meet the needs that she has? And so when when we're dealing with investors and they're, they're going through this process to determine what their decision is, whether they want to self-insure or go through an insurance company to meet these needs, we will look at whether there is any pool of money that they are not going to need to touch for their retirement income. Like in this $2 million example here, the Turners were using that for their income. Yeah, they had a good seven-figure amount, but they were using it. So if you have money that does not need to be included in your retirement income plan, then this is open for discussion on the self-insurance. If you don't, then you really need to go through the process of making an intentional decision with your advisor and with your spouse about how you want to cover that need. So let's also talk about the the Medicaid issue, because I hear a lot of people going, well, can I do something with a trust and be sure that I don't have to to spend my assets to go to the nursing home? Absolutely not. Uh, Medicaid is literally a pauper's program. It's a federally funded program administered by the states for people who are otherwise unable to afford care. Now, unable to afford care is the key here because you literally would have to gift your assets away. And in Joe's uh, particular case, that's not a tenable situation because they're living on the income and it would be a taxable event to gift away all that qualified money. So that is a, a major issue there. But also asset transfers to family members create this five-year look-back issue that really does 
run afoul of any plan to try to get around the Medicaid laws. And so for only the most indigent people out there is Medicaid an option. And so that's simply not the case. So that brings us back to the issue of long-term care. And I think that that there's several things that, that we've got to recognize with this. No, no one really wants to spend hundreds of dollars a month on a long-term care policy that they may or may not ever need. But neither do you want to spend thousands and thousands of dollars a month on actual long-term care expenses and put yourself in a situation where $2 million could be evaporated fairly quickly. So let's talk about spending the money on a policy that you may not ever need. Um, my, my mom, just due to the time period when she acquired her coverage, her policy is a, a use it or lose it type of policy, I'll say, where if she does not have a long-term care event, then in that case, she's paid premiums all these years and doesn't have a benefit that will be received out of the policy. Because, again, at the time that she got coverage, that was the only type of policy that there was. But the industry realized that people were saying, you know, it's a little expensive for something I may not ever use, so I don't think I want to take that risk. And they were rolling the dice on whether they would ever really need coverage. So what the industry began to do is alter the products that they offer. There are still traditional long-term care policies available like what my mom has, but there are also hybrid policies where it's really a life insurance policy with a rider on it to cover long-term care type of events. And so in that case, if you think about it, if this is life insurance money, then if you if you just die of a heart attack and you never need care, you're just gone here one minute and gone the next, then that policy is going to pay out in the form of life insurance. But if you, like Mr. Turner, if you have a stroke and you need care, then that pool of money is going to pay out to provide for care. So it's not, I'm paying all this money and nobody's ever going to use it. I promise you, unless Jesus comes first, then you're going to either need the long-term care coverage and then pass away, or you're going to not need the long-term care pu- coverage and you're going to pass away. Mm-hmm. But uh, as my as my pastor says, ain't none of us getting out of here alive unless <laughs> Jesus comes first. Yeah. So, so you're going to use it one way or the other. And we feel a lot better about those types of policies and being implemented for our clients. Somebody's getting paid. That's yeah, what I Yeah, somebody's Somebody, getting paid. Somebody's getting paid. So we talked about the who and the what. Now let's briefly discuss the when, because that really becomes a big component of this too. When should you seek it? If a long-term care insurance policy is right for you, when is the best time to apply for it and get the policy rolling? Well, the industry will say before age 60, probably between 55 and 60. But I think in your early 50s, you need to start thinking about it, right? Because the planning needs to be there for it. Whether you actually enact a policy that soon, that remains to be seen. But the Price is a consideration here, John, because if you wait till into your 60s very far, it's going to get rather cost prohibitive because it's going to you're obviously closer to the likely age you're going right. to need it. And if you do it too soon, then you're paying for it for a long time. You could have obviously done better by investing that money and creating your own pot of money. Potentially so. There's no magic formula here, but yeah. here's what you need to know, that it is age-based and that, you know, the earlier you buy, the lower the premium is. So, you know, what I think is very practical is, as Scott said, in your 50s, you need to be thinking about it, moving toward that. At least by 55, you need to be having serious discussions about it and, and going ahead and buying a policy, let's say between 55 and 60 years old, I think makes a ton of sense because after your 60s, 
60, then then cost does become a factor. That should not sway you from buying a policy yep. if you don't have one beyond age 60, but it does put you kind of in a disadvantaged situation because the costs are higher then. I think it's also important to point out we did the who, the what, and the when, but the how much, yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. I think this... I don't want to encourage people to run off to an insurance agent and just get a long-term care policy, right? It needs to be implemented as part of an overall financial plan. What does your retirement income plan look like? How much are you going to be living on based on your assets? And that process will tell us if you've overfunded your retirement and you have the possibility of self-insuring or if you need all or maybe just some of a supplemental income stream to provide long-term care coverage. And that's why we brought, uh, Tony Contorno is our insurance specialist here at GenWealth, that's why we brought somebody in to play that role because we believe it ties in so much with, as you said, Scott, the rest of the financial plan. It's not something that needs to be looked at individually separately from everything else frankly if you're going to have those premiums then we need to be sure that your retirement income plan has the plan for you to have the income to pay those premiums every month that you're going to need to do that so it does all go together it's very important to plan it all together and as we talk about all the time it's really not about that uh magic number as far as an asset level we've illustrated that here today a couple with two million dollars if they had a high income need it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have a successful retirement. So it's all about income in relation to the asset value. Yeah, it absolutely is, Scott. And, and I think that that, that income, a, a good thing to do is to sit down with your advisor and say, hey, when we create my retirement income plan, build in for me a, a long-term care premium for me and my wife, because I think that's how you get really down the road with this with some degree of comfort. All right, there is our final bell. You heard it. Janet, we'll start the final thoughts off with you. Okay, we would all like to think, especially when it comes to long-term care, that it won't happen to me or it won't happen to my spouse. I will tell you that I've seen it happen to way too many couples over the years in in doing what I do for a living. So it could be you. Statistically, it it very possibly could be you or it could be your spouse. So those those long-term care events can have an incredibly devastating impact on your finances. And what that really means is a devastating impact on the healthy spouse's quality of life and their ability to proceed with whatever they were doing previously. So be sure that you take the time and meet with an advisor to make an intentional decision about what is right for your family. So let's go over some important steps to be prepared for the unexpected, because this is really one of those things that, again, nobody really expects, nobody really wants, but the, the, the future really does belong to the prepared, as we said. And so have important legal documents in place before a, a health event takes you down. That's very critical. Have a long-term, uh, long-term care needs analysis performed and do it before you need it. Obviously, you've got to do this before that need is created. Understand the fallacy of self-insurance. Many people are, are laboring under that false assumption that if they have a million dollars, they'll be okay. Probably not. And also understand the impractical advice of giving away assets. And my final thought, ready to review your long-term care plan. If you have a plan or if you need a plan for long-term care coverage, I want you to write this number down, 501-381-5228. Again, 501-381-5228. Text LTC to schedule a review 
with an advisor and our long-term care specialist. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. We thank you again for listening and watching online if you were a part of that. We hope you, again, have a wonderful, fun, safe 4th of July weekend, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help us get the word out on building toward financial independence, leave us a rating and review. The Gen Wealth financial team is available to you 24-7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment, and no strategy can assure success. GenWealth Financial Advisors is an Arkansas-registered investment advisor with securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. 